that her humanity made her the kind of character that readers want to cheer on. You're listening to WERA 96.7 FM in Arlington, Virginia. This is Real Fiction. I'm your host, Lori Messing-McGarry. Real Fiction is produced with Arlington Independent Media. The producers and staff are working hard during the COVID-19 crisis to bring you new, relevant programming. We continue to experiment with recording technology and protocols, and every day is a new adventure. We couldn't do it without your support. If you like the programs you hear, please consider visiting our websites, arlingtonmedia.org and wera.fm to make a donation as we gear up for our spring fund drive. Today's Real Fiction episode deals with the sensitive topic of human trafficking. Some of the discussion may not be appropriate for young listeners. My guest today is Talia Karner. She is the author of five novels, including her latest, The Third Daughter, published by William Morrow, a division of HarperCollins. The Third Daughter tells the story of a little-known piece of history during the 19th century when young Jewish girls in Russia were sold into slavery, sex slavery, actually, in Argentina. This is a challenging intricately plotted novel that demands attention and rewards the reader. Remarkably, as we will hear from Talia, the same methods used in the 19th century to lure young girls into the sex trade are still used today. Talia is a human rights activist with a background in economics. This interview was originally planned for the end of March when Talia was scheduled to speak at a United Nations conference in New York. But as COVID altered all of our lives, we had to delay the discussion. And as it turns out, I'm glad we waited because the story has taken on new resonance as millions of people are forced into isolation, unemployment, and unprecedented levels of vulnerability. This is particularly the case for women. Talia's life work addresses the subjugation of women in difficult circumstances. This new novel, The Third Daughter, draws inspiration from stories by Sholem Alehem that were theatrically adapted decades later into Fiddler on the Roof. One story in particular, The Man from Buenos Aires, was Talia's inspiration to writing the novel, The Third Daughter. And I want to mention her website now, taliacarner.com, because as you're listening to the discussion, you can find this short story in translation there, as well as other source material that informed the novel. Joining me today from Florida to discuss The Third Daughter is Talia Carner. Talia, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. In this latest novel, The Third Daughter, you discovered a footnote of late 19th century history. It was a period in which young Russian women were trafficked to Argentina in a prostitution network. How did you learn about the criminal group Zui Migdal, and correct my pronunciation if I got that wrong, and when did you know that this could become a novel? I had a little bit of an inkling about the fact that they had been a prostitution issue that had to do with Jews in South America. But that's all I knew. Then one day, unrelated to anything else in my life, I was I decided to read the original short stories of Sholom Aleichem, who wrote the character we all know as Tevye from Fiddler on the Roof. I was actually going to see another production of Fiddler on the Roof, and I was curious to read more because I had grown up in Israel, and I always knew that Tevye had seven daughters, 
and I'd seen enough productions of Fiddler on the Roof to know that they only told the stories of three and left the stage during a pogrom with two unmarried daughters, and I was wondering whatever happened to the others. Mm. So I got this collection of short stories and started to read, and the way there's this particular series came, it's called The Railroad Stories. The author is supposedly on a train in Russia, and different people, different characters come on and tell him their stories, mostly in a monologue. And Tevi is one of them, and he comes on and he says, oh, Mr. Author, here you are again. Let me tell you what happened to my next daughter. In the first story, he says, I have seven daughters. In the second story, he forgot it and he says I have six daughters and eventually ends up telling the stories of only five. The adaptation of Fiddler on the Roof, the theatrical adaptation of those short stories was not the first or even the tenth theatrical adaptation. Actually Sholom Aleichem himself had written a play based upon that character of Tevye but it was the one that became an icon, iconic piece of production because of the music, the lyrics, and of course the dances, choreography by Jerome Robbins. In that short story, as I'm flap, flipping through the book, I came across another short story called The Man from Buenos Aires. And unlike Tevier, that is such a warm character, a loving husband and a father, a man who talks to God and to his horse, giving both the questions and the answers, the man from Buenos Aires left me with a terrible, creepy feeling, and I knew what this man was and what was his business. That's sex trafficking. So I put down this 1909 short story and went to modern-day Google. And within minutes... I was printing out dozens of articles about this organization, and I learned that the name was Zvimigdal, Z-W-I-M-I-G-D-A-L, and I learned that it was a legal union that operated with impunity for 70 years, from 1870 until 1939. All of that was available right on the Internet, it brought it sight. It wasn't a hidden information. There had been books. Eventually, I used uh, PhD dissertations that had a lot of figures and numbers and data that was more specific. All of that information was available. It has been there. From that point on, to your question about how, when did I decide to write the story, the story just forced itself into my head. I tried actually not to write it. I didn't want to write anything bad about Jews. But the voices of these young women, which by now I figured out we were talking about at least 150,000 Jewish girls and women. I just could not ignore them anymore. And they forced me to write their story. What I find amazing about this backstory is that you found what feels like two separate tracks of information and figured out how to tell a narrative that no one has told before. And what I would remind listeners is that you have a background in economics, you have uh, lived in Israel, and you wrote a novel earlier in your career named uh, titled Hotel Moscow. So the fact that we go in so deep into the world of Russia and Argentina is really unique and fascinating, and I have never read anything like it. Uh, and you almost anticipated my next question. What was the reaction to your research for this novel, both within Argentina and within the Jewish community? Within Argentina, it's pretty known. Actually, 
I think that currently there is a television series about it. There have been a lot of stories, a lot, I don't speak Spanish, so I don't know about all of this material, but it's available, a lot of it in Spanish. There have been songs, there have been plays, but so in Argentina, it's not news. What held me back was the fact that I have Argentine friends, Jewish Argentine friends, and I am not sure about their the background of their families, one, two, three generations back. And some of their background stories made me suspect, and I learned that quite a few of the prostitutes and the pimps of the time were somehow, they, they had families. So I kept away from discussing it. Actually, my husband was quite concerned about our friend's reaction. But the probably at the beginning, I got slight pushback within some within the Jewish community here in the United States, but it was very mild. A friend who is very big in the Jewish literature in the U.S., I asked him at over dinner one day whether he's ever heard of it. He said no. So I, I showed him, I Googled it, and I showed him on the phone. And he said, you know, I really, you sure you want to write about something like that? His wife also is very involved with uh, literary events. And guess what? By the time the book came out, they made sure that they initiated for me all kinds of speaking engagements and events because they were so struck by the this particular book and how I executed that story that they became my greatest supporters. This is just an example. There were others, there were some Jewish community centers that were resistant to inviting me to talk about it. But by the time the book was out and I was planning my book tour, their membership pushed towards it. And all of a sudden, I got those invitations one by one coming my way. So I would say it was a very, very little resistance because the bigger picture is the sex trafficking that not only I'm unveiled, but I take the lessons of the past. We cannot change what happened to these poor women, Jewish girls and women who had been trapped. But when I see that the methods used by traffickers today, offering false promises of marriages and jobs, and then forced women into prostitution. Are the same methods? I take the lessons and I say we cannot change anything in the past for these women victims, but we can change the future or the present. And that is when I come into making something for out of this bad situation and launched my activism. You are an activist, you're a human rights activist. And I knew when I read this book, it was speaking to a global broad theme that I think many people know very little about. And as I was preparing for my discussion with you, Talia, I was interested in some of the statistics that you list on your website. And I'll read one of them. It says, according to the US State Department, 600,000 to 800,000 people are trafficked across international borders every year, of whom 80% are female and half are children. And I, I would like to know what informed your understanding of the supply and demand in sex trafficking as you were researching? And what do most people get wrong about this equation? In time and again, I hear about sex trafficking as the side of the supply. And that is, there's so many, so much immigration. I'm in South Florida now, and it's supposedly the third market for sex trafficking. And the sense is it's because of so much illegal immigration and uh, poverty. What is the problem in all of that assumption is that here it is, as long as there is poverty and strife 
and war and, and misery around the globe, the supply is going to be inexhaustible. And two-thirds of them by, in the United States, by the way, come from abroad, but one-third are U.S. born, and they are miserable and poor, and we have a lot of problems in there. The suppliers will continue to recruit merchandise, which is what they consider those victims to be, as long as the punishment is minimal and the chance of profits are huge. So the risk is really worth taking. But it is the demand side that fuels this entire business. I believe it's some I, quotes of $150 billion worldwide. It's hard to tell. And, be, and I'd like to explain something. There is uh, labor trafficking and there is sex trafficking. So I'm dealing only with sex trafficking. That's an important distinction. Absolutely, yeah. And we'll talk about that in a second more. Sure. I would just like to to stay on the sex trafficking uh, means that it is fueled by men who pay for sex. There's no way around it. There's no way to mitigate this very stark fact. And as long as the demand is high, and wherever I market, the demand is high, for example, if there's a sporting, major sporting event, could be a Super Bowl or anything else, and you have a spike in the demand, in fly in the, the suppliers with their victims. And until we tackle the supply, the, the demand side heads on, we are not dealing with the problem. Yes, we, we need a lot of compassion to help the victims, A, to prevent them, but from through education from entering into this cycle but once they are trapped there's tremendous amount of work that needs to be done to help them out and rehabilitate themselves and that the barriers to exit prostitution are very high from low self-esteem to drug addiction to the lack of resources to the fact that people who try to get out cannot rent an apartment, they cannot get a, a job because they already may have a criminal record. All of those barriers to exiting the profession or what they call the life is are very high. And we need a lot of compassion and hard work to help the victims. We definitely need legislation that will penalize anybody who traffics in humans. Have you seen examples um, around the country or in other countries where the demand side has been addressed in legislation or in federal attempts? Is there anything, any, any example yes. that you can point to that works? Okay. The way that place that it works is Sweden. And in Sweden, they consider the, first of all, they consider the victims, even supposedly independent prostitutes who say that they don't have a pimp, there's no third party that benefits, they are considered victims of something, or maybe a psychological damage hmm. that puts them there. And therefore, the men are rapists, and they are dealt with as such. Now, the way the Swedish government and society deal with rapists may be different from the way we are dealing with them. We may be very far from accepting seeing the men as rapists, but I just discovered, and this just came up late, uh, very recently for me, that there is a third-degree rape. I didn't know about that. And that is in a case where... Such, such in the case of Harvey Weinstein, it came up that when supposedly the victims cooperated. So we have a situation where we need to address it with uh, in a legal way. Uh, conversely, there is a lot of talk about legalizing prostitution. And what it will do is legalize the buying of sex and it will legalize the trafficking in human beings. But it's not going to help the millions and millions and millions of victims who will continue to be victimized even more because there is no recourse. Right. Furthermore, I just want to give you two more thoughts about legalizing prostitution. One is that 
if if and when prostitution is legal, that means that the women who sell their bodies run a business and they have to pay tax. Do I want my government to tax women for selling their body for sex? It's obvious that years of research and contemplation went into how to get the facts into a story, a narrative that will resonate with readers. And Talia, you mentioned earlier that I think both your husband and other prominent members in the Jewish literary community asked you, why would you want to write this novel? And so going back to circling back to your your novel, The Third Daughter, the grounding character in that novel is named Batya. And for me, it was remarkable to watch her overcoming these horrible things happening to her and rise to a position of authority as she became a young woman. It really had to be harrowing to write this character. Can you talk about creating Batya and what you hope the reader will understand about what it was like to be a woman at that time in Russia? Thank you for the question. Let me backtrack a bit. And you mentioned before my other previous novel, Hotel Moscow. Yes. But there were others. They were Puppet Child, China Doll, Jerusalem Maiden, Hotel Moscow, and now, now The Third Daughter is my fifth novel. Every one of them deals with a social issue. It is the common denominator of my writing. There is always some social issue that unfortunately has not been discussed much in fiction before. And it's not that I go looking for saying, what can I write about that has not been written, but rather the story finds me, plants itself in my head, and then I realize that the seeds had been there for years, sometimes for decades before. So is the case in, with this story. I had been interested in subjugation of women and sexual subjugation of women and the use of rape as a tool of war. And the, I, I've attended, I live in New York City, I mentioned before, Florida is my winter home, but I, otherwise I live in New York and I had, been, I had gone to the 1995 International Women's Conference in Beijing where I was introduced to quite a few of those topics that came to be in the novels I mentioned to you. Batya came to be on her as her own person, different from any of the other characters that had been created by Shalom Alechem, because once she, I started developing, she developed on her own. I can't say I developed her. She was motivated by the need to make up for her parent, to her parents, for her sister's disappointment. They have chosen their own matches, cutting tradition. But from that point on, she was completely her own. And she went on to, she was still a child at 14, forced to become a woman before her time. Had to have a very fast learning curve through outright torture. That was very hard for me to write. It's hard for the readers to read, but it was much more gruesome that I had to cut out. It, it's difficult. It's difficult to learn what happened to these women and to 150,000 of them. All I had to do was just stay with one. I was completely into every moment of it. And the way I write is I go into the, something like a trance where... Like in a dream, I see the sights and hear the sounds and smell the smells and I feel the weather on my skin. It's like a dream, except that it has a bit more logic, but I'm there. I just close my eyes and I type. Then there's a lot of cleaning up to do, but that's how a scene comes to be. And it's just a book, I can't say wrote itself, but it went on and on and on by itself as the moral dilemma presented itself and then another moral dilemma. I think that the most important part of what came out of it for me, I wasn't planning to become an activist on this particular issue of sex trafficking. But once I finished writing the novel 
And Batya became so alive, so much of a person on her own right, I realized that her humanity made her the kind of character that readers want to cheer on from the sidelines and they go on a journey with her and through her they would understand the victims of today's prostitution. You're listening to WERA 96.7 FM in Arlington, Virginia. We're going to take a short break. When we return, you'll have more of my discussion with Talia Karner. Welcome back. You're listening to Real Fiction on WERA 96.7 FM. My guest today is Talia Karner, author of The Third Daughter. If you missed the first half of the discussion, all episodes are archived on realfictionradio.com and your favorite podcast platforms. Now more with Talia. The reader does cheer for Batya. And as I was listening to your description of the process. And um, it is important to reiterate that all of your novels have been grounded in a big issue. As you look back at your previous novels, Talia, do you think you could have written this book as a as your first novel, or did it kind of take the Jerusalem Maiden and the Hotel Moscow to get you to a point where you could take on some of the most sensitive terrain that, that exists in literature and write it from that balance between here's what we need to know and compassion for the women involved. You, prob- you are probably right that it took maturity both in age and in writing skills to get to this point of writing this particular novel. When I think back on my other novels, they are quite heart-wrenching. And at the time, began to put me on a track that most important for me was the confidence in myself and in my ability to take a very sensitive subject and to bring it to life in a way that the reader will identify with and will enter, would want to take the journey into this very dark world, dark path of the brain and our society and stay with it and live with it and learn so much about that particular issue. It's a practice. It's a craft. And one of the things that I want to mention that we're, we're discussing very dark material here, but there are moments of levity and joy in the novel as well. And you introduce them in such a, such a lovely way. And I'll, I would just like to mention one. I, we, we get a glimpse of the hierarchy of prostitution in Buenos Aires. And it becomes clear that Batia is actually working in a rather elite house and within that world, we get to see, yes, the competitiveness between the, the girls, but also their playfulness. We have tango scenes. They care about each other. And there were scenes where I actually saw the women as relatively safe, empowered, as long as they followed the rules. So on that specific note, how did you envision this kind of behind-the-scenes world in a an active elite working brothel in Buenos Aires? The, the material that was available was only an outside material, meaning there was not a single diary found in any archives. 
we don't know the story from within from these women but I looked at some photos there are some photos and I could see the women uh, you could also think this would be a today's selfie of friends getting together ha hanging out together except that these women were in semi-nude and kind of they, I must say the positions that they were at that time are not very different from the very daring positions that many women today just take as a matter of... Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, because today we are much more open and daring. Are, the dress is different, of course, in the black and white, grainy kind of old world is, is what you could see in the old photos. But once I got a glimpse of the fact that there were friendships, that's all I needed to know. I don't need to know a lot to, to start my head going. And uh, that's how my imagination works. Friendship, okay, I'm, I'm in. At the same time, as we see, life continues to batter at them in one form or another. I found out about the high level of suicide so that even it came to me that even women who supposedly adjusted to this life because for many, if they were in a brothel like the one I'm describing for Batya, even if they lived in that kind of a brothel, they, they, they had a good life. They went, went to parties, they went to the theater, they went to cafes. They were comfortable. They dressed. Oh, I, I learned that the good so to speak, good women, the married women in, in Buenos Aires were actually envious of the prostitutes who had money to buy beautiful clothes. And every time a prostitute was out in the street, you could recognize her by the fact that she was the only one who was better dressed and had a beautiful hat that the others couldn't afford. I found out just my novel was taking place in 18 starting 1894-95 and I found out that that was the time the tango developed in the brothels of uh, Buenos Aires. I had no idea. Yeah it just came I mean as I was reading about Buenos Aires at that time it came out that this is when tango was developing right then and there so it was natural for Batya to start dancing tango. Now, I have danced all my entire life, not tango, I danced ballet, now I dance jazz. So I was intrigued by the tango and uh, I took a year-long private lessons of tango in order to understand it from inside. I must say that I found it very difficult. It kind of, both my instructors had background in ballet, so they were able to relate it to it and to use my ballet background, but it is a very exact dance while it does give freedom. Most important part is I had through now my introduction to the tango community, both in Florida, actually in three places, Florida, New York, and Paris, where I also took some tango. I had a chance to talk to a lot of people and I got the sense about their emotions, the emotions of the tango is very important. For me, it remained fake, but it is at that moment that dancers believe in it. It's not just that they look romantic and they lean against each other in a romantic way, and there's a very distinct male-female role, but they actually feel that nostalgia for romance and love the competition between men and women, the subjugation, the the the, uh, the control, the macho stuff—all of that is very real for for that moment. It felt like a release for the characters when they were dancing the tango, and it certainly plays a big role in the plot, which I want to be careful about. But um, but you're quite right in that the way that it comes out in the story is that it there's a playfulness there's a power connection and perhaps a release for the girls as they are able to have some downtime and dance 
And the other thing that I, again, I find amazing about the story is that you have moments of levity. We have tango and dancing, and there is also an observation of Jewish rituals. In your research, you discovered the uh, cemeteries and how they were laid out for prostitutes and for anyone who may have taken their own life. But really, the Jewish rituals felt to me quite essential, um, even in the brothel. And as Batya was making her way from Russia to Argentina, she she was very much a person of faith. Did you see that as central to the novel as you were starting it, or did that evolve through drafts? It came through research. The fact is that these young women spoke Yiddish, which is a Jewish version. Or, uh, there's no nothing like it actually elsewhere. It it is a language, a very rich language. I don't speak it, but I just over the years in my life I caught some phrases. So it's it's an amazingly rich and funny language. It's extremely funny. And that's what the language they spoke in the shtetl, shtetl being the Jewish villages of Eastern Europe, they were never educated. There were no schools for girls in those uh, villages, very poor villages. Those of you who have seen maybe movies like Yentl by Barbara Streisand can get a sense of it, where only the boys were educated. So these girls had no education, nor did they have religious training or guidance because women practiced Judaism always in a different way than men. They would say a prayer over the rising of the dough. So tomorrow morning, when she's ready to put it in the oven, it had risen during the night. That would, that would be a Jewish prayer for women. Nothing to do with the men's trying to save the world through through their prayers. So these women had their Jewish identity because there was nothing else in terms of another identity. Well, what you've mentioned is that there was a low literacy rate, a lack of education among the young girls. And in the character of Batya, she has, um, shall we say, more education than her peers. And I want to be careful about uh, revealing too much about the plot. But was it your intent from the beginning to create a character that was able to read and use her skills uh, as her fate was being determined in the story? Since I borrowed the characters from Sholom Aleichem and I just continued to tell the story, Sholom Aleichem had brought in or Tevye had invited to his home a uh, scholar to teach his daughters to write. His name was Perchik in the, in the original story. And Perchik was teaching two or three of the daughters to write when he and Hordel eloped. Wow. And left and, and went to Siberia. He was a... Uh, revolutionist who wanted to bring communism and of course he was immediately was caught and was sent to the to Siberia and Hoddle followed him that's in the original story so that left an, a daughter in my mind who could read now she not enough that to learn to write well which is another skill. You can learn to use a pencil a little bit to put your name down but it's not complete sentences but she definitely could have learned to write, to read. And that was, Sholom Aleichem had laid it, out, laid it out for me already when I borrowed that story and I took the next daughter whose story was not told. I, the only thing I knew about her was that Perchik had taught her to read. I am curious to know, now that this book has been in the world for a few months, what kind of reaction are you getting from readers at your events. Specifically, has any question or comment um, or any particular story point, a question about a story point, I should say, surprised you? An interesting question, whether, I guess with every book, there are the readers who 
try to understand and analyze what the author had thought of and I may not have thought of that particular point I didn't not everything comes in uh, with a big uh, decision moment so I can't come up with right now with any anything that the readers asked me that surprised me but I would say that the one surprise I do get is how much they love it that in spite the fact that this is a gut-wrenching book and most of my books are I must say that Puppet Child is gut-wrenching and China Doll is gut-wrenching Jerusalem Maiden is not as bad <laughs> has its share of of uh, strife and problems for for the protagonists. It is true that you really put the reader through the ringer, but you end this novel on such a hopeful note. It's, for me, a, a story of resilience and courage, and it's, it's really a celebration of human strength. So I think that has to be one of the reasons that your readers are connecting so strongly with this novel. You, you give us something at the end to, to uh, sort of reward us for taking that journey with you. You know, the fact now that the word of mouth is spreading so quickly, it is really very rewarding for me because it very often comes with the disclaimer, it's tough, but you learn so much. You feel so, you, you really take, you think about the book two days later, three days later, and you know how it leaves a great feeling when you do that, when you close the book, or in case it's digital, or we have it as an audio, but a day later, and two days later, a friend said to me at, at one point, I met Batya in the street, you know, so that that leaves the readers with a very satisfying sense. It happens sometimes, I read other novels, not many, because most of my time is spent reading books for my research. But when I do read novels, sometimes it astounds me how authors wrap up their books in ways that leaves you without not feeling satisfied. You feel like that's it? Like, can't they do better than this? I don't want any reader to ever feel that way. That's an, an interesting point. And just an observation about books and marketing from where I sit, I, you know, I receive so many books, um, advanced reader copies and galleys. And sometimes there is a book that gets so much pre-promotion and marketing, and it will be a quick flash. We'll see it on a big bestseller list, and then it's quickly forgotten. There are other books that start out a little bit in a bit more quiet path, and they have what I call a slow burn, and it just keeps going and going. And I read The Third Daughter a few months ago, and I'm still thinking about it. And I'm thinking about it now because we're in a very strange time this you know this spring it's it's something unprecedented and we're we're all being tested so when i read a narrative like the third daughter it's if you can read something like your books you can be reminded that we're all going to get through this yes it's always in my books human spirit that rises over the forces that shape our lives we are all subject to forces such as religious, societal, political, geographical, because we are people of the mountains or people of the, of the ocean. We, we are product of our environment. Psychological powers are very strong. But how does the human spirit rises above it? And that is where I, I would say most of my stories are. It's a social issue but we find ourselves at the other end, most of the time, pretty victorious. There are times, it depends who is, who is the book is against. You know, my first novel, Puppet Child, was I took on the judicial system. 
the, the US judicial system. The second one, China doll, I took an, on the Chinese government and the one child policy against killing of baby girls. In Jerusalem Maiden, I took on God and I said, well, I'm really in trouble because where am I going to go from here? But even if God, I, I know that God usually wins, still he allows some level of freedom that happens within, within the world. And then came, came Hotel Moscow, which had actually had been an earlier novel that I had to rewrite or rewrote, and that I took the Russian mafia. And now I'm taking a huge business of sex trafficking, which is another major social issue. But there must be a, something good at the end if people fight really hard. And the problem is that we, or maybe the benefit, that we now, we have our sense, 21st century sensibilities are such that we understand the victims. Unlike in the 18, late 1800s, early 1900s, in Buenos Aires and the rest of the world, where the prostitutes and the pimps were lumped together as the bad, impure, salad segments of society that were looked as to one thing that were shunned. We understand today that the people who have been trapped against their will are victims. And taking that sensibility of today, we can help them so much more. That is such a beautiful way to sum up your life's work and and a way to think about the world today. And you have always been a champion of victims in your stories. And I guess maybe one of the, the most important questions and a last question is, I know there's a lot competing for your, your, your energy, your time. Are you able to discuss what you're working on next? Or is that still settling in with you? I would say that book is book number six. It's what I call it, book number six. <laughs> it's still searching its groove. I know exactly where it takes place. It's in particular locale in France. And it came to me the way other stories come to me, totally unexpected, in totally unexpected time. About three years ago, my husband and I and another couple were driving through a particular area as tourists in France. I was, ter I was not ready for any new book. I was still working on a third daughter. When we passed by a road sign and I saw a name of a village, a town, that was not even interesting to go in. It was, not, it was nothing for tourists to look for, but it reminded me of something that I knew had happened. And when I came back home to New York, I started looking into it. I got a book about it and read and knew and quite a bit and thought, well, one day, one day, maybe I don't know when, I'm going to look further into it to see if there's a story. And lo and behold, about three months later, somebody by coincidence introduced me to the key person on that particular event, who was a very old man, still alive, and I could not believe that I met this man. I didn't even know he was alive. I knew his name because I'd read the book. So since then, it kept on rolling and rolling and rolling, and I wasn't ready. Now I was supposed to be on a book tour if it weren't for our coronavirus situation where everything has been canceled but I I'm supposed to go back to France in May and that's not going to happen but I went back four times already for interviews in, in France so in the past three years so yes that's uh, a story that's still searching its groove because I know so much about it but I'm not sure what would be the the best angle to tell, to, to present it. I love hearing about those serendipitous moments. And as you said, all of these stories have 
found you. So it sounds like this is another example of something that's meant to be, and it will sort itself out in time. Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, I can't thank you enough, Talia, for joining me on the program today. I know it's taken a little while. As I mentioned earlier, I read this book a few months ago. I have been so anxious for you to tell us about it in your own words. And again, the novel is The Third Daughter, published by William Morrow. It is an imprint of HarperCollins. Thank you very much for having me on the program. And I would like to suggest to the listeners to go to visit my website. They can read the first chapter of this novel, The Third Daughter, but they can also read the background story, see, learn more about the historical background of Argentina at the time that made prostitution legal and ownership of these women legal. The way and of course, most important, the activism. What can you do to deal, to battle, sex trafficking in your own backyard. And I encourage your listeners to learn more about it. And there are many links and uh, opportunities to do something by zip code. You can find out what what's happening, happening in your community and who are the organizations that help victims. I'm so glad you mentioned that. And we will post links to your website and the links that you just mentioned on realfictionradio.com. And Tali, as you mentioned earlier in the uh, discussion, you have some documents that are in translations that perhaps no one has seen before. So we'll encourage everyone to give your website a careful look. It's www.taliacarner.com. That is T A L I A. C-A-R-N as in N-C-E-R, taliacarner.com. Thank you so much, Laurie. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We're on Wednesdays at noon on WERA 96.7, streaming on WERA.FM. And you can always find us at realfictionradio.com.